Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the very first episode of Queen Pod Squee uh, with some wonderful people that we're going to be discussing uh, all things Queen with and work through the albums and it's going to be wonderful stuff. Um, so without any further ado, on drums and soprano, our musical expert, comedian Suze Kempner. Hello. Hey Suze, how are you? I'm all good, thank you. I like being called an expert. Exactly, an expert you will be. And uh, ah, you are. Uh, and sure. on, <laughs> uh, on bass, we've got the quiet man of Queen Pod, Mr. Simon Lupton. I'm very happy with being on bass. Hello. Thank you. That's all you'll get from me. <laughs> okay, thank you, Simon. Uh, that's a quiet man for you. And on lead guitar and uh, vocals, the mighty John Robbins. Hi, John. Hey, man. I'm happy with that. Uh, I was sort of worrying where I might, might be on stage, but I'm, I'm pleased with Brian. Uh, and there's me, Ro. So, um, doesn't uh, that make you Freddy? Hey, oh my god, how Just, convenient because I'm yeah. the person of color in the group. No, <laughs> fair enough. 2020, that's just a coincidence. Hey, we're all Freddy, guys. We're all Freddy. Uh, I'm gonna cut all of this bit out. So, uh, the first thing I thought we'd uh, we've got a format point to kick off with, uh, which is Queen of the Champion. We are the champions. really nice to do is uh, just all of us if uh, you know every now and then queen just will pop into your lives in the most unexpected and lovely ways uh, and it happened for me recently i've been doing the pegasus watching order of the mcu movies and marvel movies which i highly recommend doing uh, and i was watching iron man 2 which is not the strongest of films but in this new watching order it's not bad but this is that's for a different podcast my point is halfway through the film uh, Iron Man gets a massive fight, a drunken fight with a war machine at his birthday party. And uh, just before the fight kicks off, uh, Iron Man turns to the DJ and says, DJ, drop me a fat beat. And what does he drop? 
he drops another one, bites the dust. Ah. And it's so awesome. And I kind of wasn't really watching the fight because I was just so into just Freddy belting, <laughs> belting it out. <laughs> you know, it was just a really... That was my little queen moment that happened to me, uh, yeah, this week. Has anyone got any others? I, I've, queen popped into your... I've got one, for, you know, Mr. from the London. base department, if I, if I can. Yeah. <laughs> um, as as we all know, next year is in so twenty twenty one is officially the fiftieth anniversary of Queen, um, mm. because the fortieth anniversary was celebrated in two thousand eleven, and so that's how it works. Ten years later, you do the fiftieth, um, and because it, it's marked at the point where where John joined Brian, Roger, and Freddie, and the sort of the the lineup of Queen was completed. So that's why it's sort of marked as the beginning of Queen. But obviously. We all know that Queen existed in some shape or form before then with Brian, Roger and Freddie and a, a number of different bass players playing gigs and the name Queen had been chosen. So the embryonic stage of, of Queen, if you like, started in 1970, but officially sort of became Queen in 1971. So I was drawn, it was drawn to my attention that um, during 1970 they, they played some of these early gigs. And one of them was um, at a college in Hertfordshire. Now, I grew up in Hertfordshire. And until that point, I thought Hertfordshire's main claim to Queen fame was that, of course, Nebworth is in Hertfordshire, where Freddie played his last ever gig yeah. with Queen. Um, but it turns out that they were also home to one of their, the first Queen gigs that, that Freddie did. Um, and in fact, they were actually booked a smile. Um, but when they turned up, they were... Um, they'd change their name to Queen. So uh, anyway, basically, if you go onto the fantastic um, website, uh, queenconcerts.com, there's a little sort of description of, of the concert. And I wanted to read a bit of that because there was a description by uh, this guy called David Cripps, who was the drummer in the support band for Queen on that day. And uh, he writes, I was a student at Balls Park College, Hartford. As a college band, we played at every gig and supported every act that played at the college. We were called Full Frontal Nudity, named after a Monty Python <laughs> sketch, and we were the support band to the band booked that night for the Winter Ball, which was Smile. I remember them arriving and announcing that they had just played the Cavern Club in Liverpool and were playing that night under their new name, Queen. So we played our first set, and as we left the stage, they took their places on stage. We shook hands as we passed each other, watched them, wished them luck, etc. They played their set, and then we passed them again as we took the stage to play our second set. I would love to say that I could see in embryo form the legends that they were to become, but that would not be true. I remember <laughs> thinking they were really good, and I watched some of their set, but there was a girl that I was after, and she occupied, occupied much of my attention. <laughs> he goes on to say, Later, my band changed its name to Rainbird and was one of the few bands in those days that would play Bohemian Rhapsody. One of our agents knew the Queen guys, and we were told they wanted to see us do it live. So we, they were, we were told they would come to a club in Essex that we played regularly, and we were amazed one Saturday night to see Brian May and Roger Taylor standing at the bar. And they chatted to us backstage after that set, which I thought was a lovely story. Yeah. So Aww. it struck me that the county that I grew up in, you know, was at the beginning of Queen and also at the end of Queen with, with, with Freddie as a live act. Um, but the one little footnote to that story is that in 1980, when I was at junior school, so I would have been about nine, 
um, I was uh, in a class called 3C, and the C stood for Crips. So David Cripps, who was the drummer in Full Frontal Nudity, was my teacher in the third year at junior school. No really? way! Yes. Oh, that's so amazing. That is six degrees of separation to Queen. Wow. I was taught by the drummer of the support act of one of their first gigs. That's phenomenal. And I was that reminded is. of that this week. So um, I think it'd be great if anyone else out there is has stories of those how close they they came to being connected to Queen, however tenuous it might be. I'd love to hear Oh, we could call it Seven Degrees of Rye. They are. lovely. (laughs) That's it. I'm writing that down, John. Is he he the reason you started playing drums as well then? I think it might have been, actually, because I didn't start playing until I got into secondary school, but I definitely think I must have looked at that and thought, if I'm ever going to be in a band, I want to be the drummer. Um, Right. And, yeah, certainly him and probably Roger, I would say. Yeah, oh yeah, Roger yeah. would have been a bigger influence. <laughs> Maybe, but let, let's Possibly. say let's say they're on a par. I'm sure. They're... Yeah, Roger Taylor and Dave Cripps. There you go. Um, he actually contacted me after Days of Our Lives documentary came out and said, "I don't know if you know this, but," and I was like, "I wish I'd known that because we would have interviewed him." But I love I love the honesty of it. The fact that he was like going, I, I didn't feel like I was witnessing the birth of what would become one of the greatest bands ever um, because he was more interested <laughs> in the girl in the, in the crowd, which is how a drummer should be. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Drummers <laughs> are. Um, uh, we should totally get him on the podcast sometime. I'm sure he'd love to. Amazing. Um, uh, just to say, actually, while, while we're waiting to move on to our next format point, uh, we are in July 2020, uh, so we are still recording this remotely and, uh, you know, doing it by Zoom and blah de blah So if you hear the odd uh, police siren or <laughs> cat wailing or, uh, in my case, a piano player pianoing, um, that's my mum. So let's... Um... Can we, um, just a point of order, can we call them features and not format points? It's, it sounds quite... Um... <laughs> it's like a meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I will strike format points off the agenda. (laughs) (laughs) So our next format point, I mean feature, is called Love of Our Lives because Queen are the love of our lives. hear from all of you actually we have um an email address which is queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com and uh you can also get us at the queen pod on insta and um uh, uh twitter we would love to hear from you about how you got into queen if you've got any questions for us to debate chat about talk about stuff like that so for this episode We've got uh, a little thing from John Worsey from South Sea, uh, who's told us exactly why he got into Queen and what it means to him. And he's also given us a question for us to have a chat about. So I will read you what he sent us. Uh, the first Queen song I knowingly heard was The Invisible Man. I loved it because it was about an invisible man. I was <laughs> nine years old. I'd been too young for Queen to be a formative band, the musical love of my life, but that's what they became anyway. 
It's because of Queen that I play guitar and write songs. It's because of Queen that I love so many different kinds of music. Queen could give you rock, pop, metal, opera, ballads, funk, musical, all on one album. Why can't other bands do that? Because no other band is Queen, that's why. Uh, In the three decades since, I've come back to Queen again and again. I find more in their music each time. My favourite albums and songs change as I grow. They are a gift that keeps giving. When I first got into Queen back in 92, they were my joy and comfort as my parents split up. They gave me a whole world of art to escape into. In 2019, as my mother-in-law was taken by cancer, I found that I could listen to nothing but Queen for months. Save me, they have, they do. Aww. That's it, really, isn't it? That's Could, that Queen could have been written by me. <laughs> <laughs> that was, the first song I heard was um, Breakthrough. My parents broke up in 89, I got into them in ninety late ninety one. I like this guy, and he's called John. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a that was a really really nice email, it's so and lovely. I think sort of sums up. It's a quite a good starting point. Sums up probably where a lot of people are Absolutely. at with their music. But also, what a great a great thing! It's Invisible Man being the entry point. I mean, if you could have, it is a great song for kids, isn't it? It is, but it's just just a, a great example of how there are so many ways in into queen it doesn't have to be sort of the big classic you know bohemian rhapsodies or love of my life or you know we will rock you with the champions it can be you know invisible man from 1989 that's just as good a way into queen as any other track and um Mm. i'm sure roger will be delighted Uh, so here's john's question from queen to hot space in just nine years queen went on a massive musical journey is there a queen song from the 80s that you think could fit on the first album? Oh, my God. Oh, that's a great question. Isn't that a good question? question. Wow. Because innuendo, I don't think we can include innuendo because that's post-80s. yeah. And there is a lot of innuendo that sounds like Queen 1. Like, there's a lot of sort of connectivity between those two albums in in a really lovely way. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. That's a super... That's one of the best questions I've ever heard in my life. Isn't it great? It is a great question. It's like you pull it out of a... um, box of conversation starters at dinner parties can but i offer with, with up with queen fans can i offer up i want it all that to me felt like going back to their roots but perhaps not queen one though but certainly Oh, it's a hard one, isn't it? It's heavy, it but it's still not the right answer. <laughs> There's a right yeah. answer. <laughs> I, I wonder, now this could be controversial, hmm. if there's something, if there's something of calling all girls in wow. that oh, early okay. smile, kind of doing all right vibe. Mm-hmm. I wonder if a, a sort of an acoustic version of Calling All Girls might have that night comes down feel. Or... Yeah, I don't. I don't know though. Mm. No, that's still <laughs> not the right answer. Suze, come on. <laughs> Um, You're going to get this. The first thing that came to my head, because I instantly went to the works, was Tear It Up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We gotta tear it up, tear it up, baby, baby. We gotta tear it up, tear it up, baby. 
like if that had opened Queen One instead of Keep Yourself Alive, I wouldn't have gone what? No, yeah, good shout, would, good but... shout. <laughs> but again, it's I got that sort of sort of tin drum. So it's a, it is got that sort of because they were heavily into that. So they've started to experiment with electronic sounds by mm-hmm, that point, I mm-hmm. think. So I think the right answer, uh, which is the right answer, <laughs> is Princes of the Universe. And here we are, we're the princes of the universe. Here we belong, fighting for survival. We've got to be the rulers of your world. Princes of the universe, man. Like, lyrically, it's on point for all the kind of mystic fairy world stuff that they yes. are going on about. It's got, cr- it's a crazy song yeah, uh, with loads of different parts in it. It almost doesn't repeat itself at any point. Uh, and it is raw and operatic and bananas. And I think Princess of the Universe could sit on Queen One very, very easily. Mm-hmm. Actually, well, I think you're right. I would say, because you've reminded me of um, the Magic album, I Give, give Me the Prize, prize yeah. if it mm. didn't have the clips of the Kurgan in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know his name. That early guitar solo wouldn't wouldn't be out of place with Great King Rat. That's true. Oh yeah, and yeah, I yeah. considered it, but I, uh, and I still went with Princes because of its crazy yeah. shift. Mm. But yeah, give me the prize is heavy. Uh, but is it even half a track without the villain from the movie Highlander? Uh, <laughs> you know, shouting various things like, you know. Well, how's how's this for? I've forgotten all of the things he said. Seven degrees of rye. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> my oh, great feature point. My fi- <laughs> my fiance's sister has directed a film, um, which is currently awaiting release when cinemas return. And the father in the film is played by Clancy Brown. Oh, wow. And uh, Emerald, my my fiance sister, said he was absolutely lovely. And I just kept doing his voice and it got quite annoying. (laughs) His voice from Highlander. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Or whatever he says. I love that movie so much. That's yeah, great. yeah, he's amazing. At any time, Clancy Brown turns up in a thing. He's he just... great, isn't he? Because he plays yeah. not he. I I only can think of him playing terrible people, but he does seem like a very nice man. Yeah, he turns up in the Mandalorian, being badass, and he does he. Yeah, he's uh, uh, obviously he's the um, drill instructor in Starship Troopers, yeah. which is a film <laughs> that everyone should see. Yeah, and as then he's the. The, what the, one of the main characters in Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, yes. he's oh, uh, God, the yeah. guard. Yeah, he is the, uh, yeah, the head warden or well, uh, guard, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. But first and foremost, he is the Kurgan. He's the Kurgan. <laughs> Inspiration of Give Me the Prize. Well, that was a good feature point, wasn't it? Great question, great John. Question. How oh, lovely. What a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant question. Um, thank you very much, John Worsey from Southsea. 
you are appreciated. And please, please, we want to hear from you. If you want to share anything about your relationship with Queen and how much you, uh, you know, what they might mean to you, and and particularly if you've got a really fun question for us to, um, to debate, we we love this stuff. This is num 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 for us. <laughs> we have been nattering away, and we haven't even got into the tracks yet. Uh, so this is. Uh, the main bulk of the this is this is our purpose. We've reached the format feature status update point, uh, which I have called the works. Uh, and what we're going to do now is we're going to do a deep dive. I hope on uh, side A of Queen, which was released on the 13th of July, 1973, um, uh, on EMI and Electra, recorded at Trident Studios and Delaney in London, uh, and all done on downtime from other bands that were recording. So they were getting free studio time, but they were having to go in at like one in the morning and stuff like that, right? Um, uh, and we're going to look at the Side A, which was uh, Keep Yourself Alive, Doing All Right, Great King Rat, Mad... Well, we'll talk about Mad the Swine along the way, uh, and My Fairy King, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful, happy thing. First of all, uh, Suze, this is one of your favourite Queen albums, right? Yeah, I, I, I really love the first two albums, and uh, this was... When I decided, oh, I'm super into Queen... I went, I'm going to buy the albums in order when I've got the money to do so. So I just turned 15 when I bought this and I was in a production of (laughs) Guys and Dolls, (laughs) the Harlequin (laughs) Theatre Redhill. And I can remember sitting cross-legged on the dressing table, on the makeup table in my dressing room with my big headphones on, listening to this on a Discman and just thinking, huh, Everyone around me doesn't know how cool I am. <laughs> I'm listening to I'm listening to Early Queen. There's probably only a hundred people who've heard this stuff. <laughs> well, that was yeah. Oh, I've and I've got a real distinct memory of that and hearing hearing Liar for the first time, just going like, none yeah. of these girls know what I'm listening yeah, right. to. <laughs> so, what was it about this album that that got you? Is is compared to all the other Queen albums? Is it just mm. the the... I'm really, I'm really into origin stories anyway. So like, <laughs> an early album is like this is their origin story, even though it isn't, because I've since uh, got that bootleg CD, Queen in Use, some weird mm. Italian CD. Um, I remember getting that in HMV a couple of years later, and so that's their origin story, really. But you can hear, uh, you can hear on this album where everything on the greatest hits album comes from both the both the greatest hits albums you can hear where that all came from on this first album yeah 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 there's Um, a lot of dna i'm sure we'll get into that wonderful stuff why don't we pile in and actually start with uh keep yourself alive which is written by brian brian may uh it's about three minutes 47 seconds long and it didn't it was their single off this album which didn't chart but uh in 2008 rolling stone magazine rated the song 31st on its list of 100 greatest guitar songs of all time Ah, even though it never charted which is lovely um and uh, there's a few bits that i want to listen to i think let's listen to the opening first shall we because it's just it's you know this is why it's a 
great guitar song right here. One of the greatest. That is the introduction to all of Queen for most people, right? That is, if you want to start at the beginning with us and listen to all these tracks in order and have a great old time because you watched the movie or whatever and want to find out more, what a way! That's just. It is a hell of an intro to an album, isn't it? First album. Yeah. How many guitar layers are there? (laughs) (laughs) Lots. I remember, like, when I first listened to that, listening to it on headphones and. Sorry to date myself, but on, on, on actually on a cassette walk, ah, sure. Susie. So you're, you're very young. Yeah. Um, like, but wow, it was like feeling it. in that opening guitar section that the music was actually like moving from one headphone to the other, mm. which I yes. just never imagined before. And you can, like now, obviously, you can work out how they do that and you can mm. research what Brian was doing with his guitar and with the overdubs and on like on so many different queen songs but that experience of thinking this is actually alive yeah. this sound that's going from one ear to the other and yes. then back again mm-hmm. and also i think like lyrically it's such a great introduction because it's it basically is saying this is what's brought us here and covering a lot of what we were talking about in terms of their sort of struggle in sort of 1970 and 71 and 72 it feels like freddie is saying I've done all this stuff and it almost broke me, but we're here now mm. and um, we're here to stay. Mm. And it's worth yeah. it. In fact, it's a song for the times, actually. I found it an immensely reassuring song to be listening to through this uh, pandemic situation we've been dealing with at the moment. And uh, it's hugely relevant. The other thing that I love about actually a lot of stuff on this album is it it actually feels really current. By current, I mean... Like, I wouldn't be surprised if a band like, this is not necessarily that current, but say like the Arctic Monkeys, um, mm. when they were kicking around, what, five, 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 six, seven years ago, you know, if they were to to put a song out like this, everyone would be just like humming along, just perfectly happy. You know, it's mm. it's got a real edge to it. And you're, like, you're right, they, I think they, right from the off, from the very first strains of this album, you hear that they are pushing the envelope in every which way they can, like making the most out of what a studio can do. Yeah. Tell you what I'd like to hear is um, a sort of a spoken, like, rapped version by The Streets. Yeah. (laughs) I think that would be a really interesting way of hearing Keep Yourself Alive. Yeah, with bags of pathos. What's interesting to me is that we're all involved in essentially sort of making content you know uh, so i make tv programs and you guys sort of do radio podcasts or you know stand-up comedy and, and so forth and the thing is whenever you start anything new the one bit of advice you always get is you have to have complete confidence because if if the audience hint at any or get any hint of that you're unsure about what you're doing they'll smell that fear and it won't come across and when you listen to that 
that is a band supremely confident mm. in what they're doing. It's such a we're here opening, isn't it? Yeah. And I just think yeah. for the first track on a first album to be that sure. I mean, it. They talk about later, sort of, you know, how they always started building songs. It was piano, bass, and drums. That's how they would lay the the foundation of a a song. And I think there's a, something to be said about that connection between Roger and John, as you know, speaking on behalf of John Deacon here. That connection between uh, Deacon John. You'll sorry, Deacon John. Yes, uh, at this point, um, when you that the way that those two locked in and gave you that solid bass to build on and you hear it right mm. from the beginning mm. of that mm. song the drums and bass are absolutely locked together um they did you know that i think is is what makes it work so well is that sheer confidence and expertise at the beginning it's a really yeah. enduring song if you take their 70s albums each one starts with just such a statement of intent yeah, yeah. whether that's the the sort of quieter regal confidence of procession on queen mm-hmm. two or the bravery and of of brighton rock mm. yeah or the sort of death on two legs as that huge like line in the sand of of saying we're no we're no longer we're sort of free from our mm. awful old management mm. yeah. and then tie your mother down is such a big song and is probably has has a sort of similarity with keep yourself alive yeah. as it starts with that sort of sort of um solo guitar piece <laughs> so they were very good at op- they're very good at opening albums yeah well they were just you know we we will rock you on news of the world that they, they 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 put some of their most meaningful stuff up front mm-hmm. they're such a theatrical band on it you know they they did think in terms yeah, of drama yeah yeah they it, it's like structuring um an album like it's a a show yes yeah. absolutely yes. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly right yeah um look there are a couple of bits on this track that i absolutely adore uh my my personal favorite bit that i do i was going to play maybe that drum solo into the guitar solo bit because i i just think that's really fun but here we go incredible absolutely incredible i just you know it's not like roger does huge numbers of drum solos but in that one in particular it's just got such a journey to it uh and then when the when the the guitar solo kicks in at the end of it it's just there's so much momentum going into that right yeah and considering it's their this is their opening track on their opening album they weren't afraid to go right we're gonna go full queen with this <laughs> right. guitar solo it's li- he literally yeah. it's like roger goes over to you brian and yeah, 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 yeah. it's like full red special guitar solo this it's unmistakably queen yeah, yeah 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 absolutely yeah it existed and the song kind of existed before freddie uh, was on board but you can hear where he's had input like no no one would do a key change down a key that doesn't happen but they they go for it they're like oh, really? we're just gonna go down and then we'll go back up yeah in oh, in their God. opening song on their first album they're not playing it safe oh my god that's great is it a complex is it a complex song musically it, it is for what it sounds like on paper which is a cool rock song from the early 70s but 
that's what it is on paper but it is quite complex there's like definite sections to it but it's you'd never like liken it to bohemian rhapsody but you can hear the freddie's rule-breaking arrangements are already coming into play right 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 I, i think also some of queen's complexity is quite deep in the song and how it's recorded so mm. they're not a band that play around with crazy time signatures or sort of really confusing phrasing of stuff it's more in it's more how complex it is to build that sound up so a, an awful lot of their sort of the iceberg of, of a queen song is so much has gone on before to make that song almost sound simpler than it is I, th- right, I think right. I would I think I would say so it's not yeah. like mm. you know if you listen to a Frank Zappa song and I will probably mention him <laughs> more than you would want over the next uh, 20 weeks well, you already have <laughs> but his <laughs> but his songs are insanely complex as you hear them and you can tell that the musicians playing them are with sort of within an inch of what musicians are capable of doing live whereas I don't think Queen were necessarily in that situation they were more of a like a studio complex band as opposed to a a sort of a necessarily live complexity. Mm -hmm. We need to move on really but there's just one tiny bit from this song that I think is one of the coolest bits in all of Queen that I desperately want to want to play. Uh, I'm not saying this this should be considered for the uh, ultimate Queen playlist, but my God, what a track! I think you guys know what I'm going to play. I know you do, Suze. Here we go. Do you think you're better every day? No, I just think I'll do destiny run through my grave. Now, how stone cold is that? <laughs> a little bit of Rog, a little bit of Brian, and they sound so cool. It's so yeah. like, they're so laid back. You can tell from certain live moments, early doors, and on and on Queen One, that Freddie's voice isn't hasn't reached its destination mm, yet. Mm-hmm. And but Roger is actually, if you were sort of listening to that, you'd think, well, he's the natural singer. Yeah. Because he sounds like a rock singer, mm-hmm. whereas Freddie doesn't quite sound like a rock singer. He sounds like someone. He sounds like they've sort of got their uh, sort of classical singer to try and do a rock album, mm. right. which is obviously brilliant. But in that clip is a good example of you think, well, Roger's the Roger's the singer because that just sounds like such a cool rock voice. Yeah, he sounds mm. like Starscream. He's amazing. That mm-hmm. is a Decepticon. Uh, he's, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I absolutely adore adore Roger's voice. Uh, it is just one of the coolest voices ever. Um, oh yeah, in any other band, he's the lead singer. Right. Like he's got that sort of he's got that um, Paul Rogers, Robert Plant, almost Axl Rose as well. They've they've all got that voice that fits uh, in that particular mold, and it's su- he's got such an amazing rock voice, and it's great that he. Um, gets solo songs on some of the albums mm. and of course he's got his own uh, solo releases but it's weird to imagine that this band had essentially three really great singers in it but their voices go together perfectly yeah yeah it's only really since i started the podcast that i fully accepted that it was three singers and that deacon yeah. john was not one 
Deacon John not singing. There's one song he sings on. I was reading about it the other day. I can't remember. It's it's on this album, but it's the only song he's That's ever right, contributed. Right. It was Liar, wasn't it? I think too. Liar. Was it on Liar? Liar? Right. Apparently, right. yeah. We should actually point okay. out to people who are who are sort of coming to this new. Um, why we keep referring to him as Deacon John? Um, <laughs> because uh, if you get the Queen album and as a physical product, so you can actually look at it, um, I was reminded of this when I dug out my old vinyl copy just ahead of this is that when you see the credits uh, of the band named at the back so you know Freddie Mercury is there he's already Freddie Mercury so mm. he's already changed his name from Farouk Balsara so he's known from Freddie right from from the, the go Brian May is still Brian May and will always be Brian May God bless him um, <laughs> Roger is down as Roger Meadows Taylor that was his <laughs> full name and um I love about it now is if if you see his drum cases to this day, they've still stamped with RMT um, across Aww. them, which is a nice little nod to that. Um, but John Deacon is down as Deacon John because they all thought that would make him sound more interesting. And <laughs> <laughs> so they changed his name round, um, which he hated. And I think maybe what might have been the thing that persuaded him to put his foot down as the quiet member of the band and go, no, is that if if we do listen to the gold as green uh, show later on which was the first I think recorded um, concert of Queen that exists uh, they are introduced he's introduces and Deacon John on bass and I think he must have heard that and gone no no I'm not doing this anymore that's it <laughs> okay uh, so I found this little bit I've got a little bit of a lead in but yeah we found this brilliant uh, intro so I think this guy is introducing them live in the I think in the hall in yeah. the room because people are responding but here we go there you are, that was Ogre Battle, another new number from Queen. That was a Freddie Mercury composition, and that's being recorded for the new album. Very fine bunch of lads they are, you know. We've got Freddie Mercury on vocals. Roger Meadows-Taylor on percussion. Deacon John on bass. And Brian May on guitar. All right. We're moving on with another number that's featured on the Queen album, the first album. That's brilliant. That's the most lackluster response. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so, Simon, is that the oldest, is that the earliest recording of Queen with John Deacon called Queen live? Uh, officially, sort of properly recorded. I think there might be okay. bootlegs, but I'd have to, to sort of dig in. But that's that was that was recorded by the BBC, so it's like properly recorded. Yeah. yeah. Again, not a voice you're going to hear on Six Music. <laughs> He's really kind of like a parody, isn't he? Yeah. That's proper smashy and nice. Yeah, yeah. Fine bunch of lads. Fine bunch of lads. Fine bunch of lads. I like the idea that they were. Even the audience are kind of just like, yay. They're not. They're not that excited. No. <laughs> I think that's probably the recording more than anything. Let's I like the assume. idea they go and Roger Meadows Taylor on drums and just loads of girls going. <laughs> 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 that is true. Yeah, to this day, my sister keeps telling me about that issue. Um, I'll tell my de my Deacon John oh, anecdote, please. which still bugs me to this day. <laughs> so I was I was writing on um, eight out of ten cats, and every lunchtime we'd play this thing called the birthday game, where you uh, where someone reads out the name and the description of someone from the Times birthdays, and you have to guess how old they are. And you get two points for bang on, one point for a year either side. 
So Richard Osman came in, and I'd never met Richard be before. But I was wearing uh, probably this Queen T-shirt. <laughs> should point out, I'm the only one of us wearing their oh, Queen yeah. One T-shirt. All right, but I had I was going to put my Flash T-shirt on, but lockdown hasn't been that kind to my waistline. <laughs> and so for also, your it's not sake, the Flash episode. <laughs> okay, I've got yeah. I've got the right T-shirt for the oh, right yeah, episode. Well, well done. All right. But well so Richard Osman comes in and sits down and sees the T-shirt. And because he can't stop quizzing, he just said, oh, are you a Queen fan? I said, yeah, I'm a huge Queen fan. And he said, OK, then, um, who was the first bassist to appear on a Queen album? And I'm thinking, this is a trick question. Mm. And I'm, I'm the guy with all the Queen facts, so why don't I know the answer to this trick question? Okay. And I was sort of racking my brains... And I, I went for Mike Gross, uh, thinking that I could, at least in defeat, prove that I had a good Queen fact about an earlier Queen bassist. And then he said, no, he's actually credited as G Deacon John. I was like, I knew that fact. You out-Queen facted me, and you're not even the Queen fan. You're Richard Osman, the quiz man. It's like Celebrity Mastermind all over again. No, no. That's me a klaxon every time you mention Celebrity Mastermind. No. Is that genuinely a sore point? Because I love teasing you about it, but... Um... I love it all the more if it is a genuine sore point. Uh, there is several sore points. No sore point involved with Richard Osman uh, teaching me a new Queen fact. Several sore points with Celebrity it's Mastermind. Really okay. We won't go into that. We'll go into them on the Celebrity Mastermind episode part yes. one <laughs> of four. I'm writing that down. So track two is an absolute banger, uh, Doing All Right, which I adore. Oh. I mean, everyone adores, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday, my life was in ruin. Now today, I know what I'm doing. Got a feeling I should be doing alright. Do. I, I love this track. I think it's great. I, you know the, the the fact that it can it it could be a ballad and then a heavy rock track all in the same mm. short period of time is just so Queen. It's so so fact. It's, it's sort of like a microcosm of everything that's brilliant about Queen. Um, but yes, we were interviewing um, Taylor Hawkins for the Show Must Go On documentary, um, who is one of those people who. I think, you know, musicians must get to the point where they've done everything. They just get so chilled and relaxed. You know, they don't have anything to prove. They don't have to try hard. They're just effortlessly cool. And he is one of the most effortlessly cool people I think I've ever come across. Mm. And we were at the Foo Fighters' own recording studio, which is permanently set up for them to just go and do whatever they want to do whenever. They've got their own sort of little man cave there is a massive picture on the wall which is of the women on bikes at Wimbledon Stadium from the bicycle race video oh, wow. it's yeah. huge it's fantastic so a great man cave basically for the Foo Fighters and we'd done the interview and the guys were putting the camera equipment away and he just started chatting away and he just said um he mentioned doing all right he said I love that track he says one of my favorite tracks he said I actually got a little band that I'm in that we just play local gigs whenever the foos aren't doing anything just to keep me occupied. And he said, and we do doing all right. Um, do you want to hear it? And it was like, well, yes, of course I do, Mr. Hawkins. So 
he played it and it sounded amazing and he just said they should absolutely be doing this track live because in adam they have someone who can can sing it he could do those lyrics yeah. he could do that mm-hmm. he's got the range so they absolutely should he said i've told brian that he that they mm-hmm. should put it in the set he said so next time you see brian tell him that i said he's got to do doing all right and I'm like, yeah, of course, because Brian listens to me. No problem. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, about three months later, I am sat with Brian and showing him the cut of the documentary for him to sort of give his feedback on it. And I took the plunge and I said at the end, I said, oh, by the way, you know, Taylor was great. Loved meeting Taylor. He he mentioned that he'd been on at you to include doing all right um, in the set list. But, oh, yeah, yeah, he has mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's It's not a big big hit so you know when we're in those shows you know it's got to compete with the big hits and I said well no it's not a big hit but it does have the virtue of being in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody the movie it's, mm. it's the song that Freddie auditions I said so you've, a lot of people are going to know it now that perhaps didn't beforehand he went yeah and just did that thing where he just goes mm. and nothing more <laughs> was said and I was so thrilled when I saw clips of their tour that they did at the beginning of 2020 before we all went into lockdown they were over yeah. in asia and australasia and doing all right is in the set and oh, they do it ah. and it's so good and i am oh, not so i'll hear it when i go see him live next yes year. if it's still in the set <laughs> it will be there and i am in no way claiming that i was the one that persuaded them to do it <laughs> i think taylor hawkins can absolutely claim that um, and plus many others i imagine but um, i think you're the one that tipped the scale uh, well, I th- I think that's the exclusive that's going to get a uh, this podcast in the press. I agree. <laughs> the moment yeah. that Simon Simon Lupton reveals key role in getting early Queen song into Queen plus Adam Lambert tour shock. Yes, if not the press, certainly at least a press, one press, one press. But it's that For kind sure. of thing, is it? I'm going to claim it if it's a success, but if it's a disaster, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> that is a glorious story. Should we listen to a bit of doing? Please, well? I'm actually going to jump in when it goes Calypso, because like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> Should be waiting for the sun Looking round to find the words to say Should be waiting for the skies to clear There were time in all the So that's, I mean, you've got this really mellow bass track to kick off with, and then it goes all this playful stuff, and then I think the bit that everyone loves, it does rock out before this, but I'm, I'm going to go to the... Uh, just on just on yeah. that bit, yeah. Suze, is that Freddie mm. in falsetto there? Yeah, it is, and it's so smooth. It like I mean, I could talk for hours on Freddie's voice, and Please I do. think we've uh, I can another time. <laughs> but he's got this incredible baritone where he can go up into falsetto but it doesn't sound like he's flipping his voice into another into another register it just all sounds like it's clean all the way up and I never tire of hearing that because in the same in the same song and not just on the same album in the same song he'll do a full belt on those same notes but it doesn't sound like a different voice it's yeah it's amazing but he he as queen went on he play, he did less falsetto didn't he because yeah. if if you if you listen to the golders green gig mm. 
when they're doing um i think father to son mm-hmm. there's a there's a falsetto note that he did in the early gigs but as ah. they played that song more he he he, do, he stops doing it right which he i goes thought was a like harder sound mm. it's uh, yeah i wonder if he as the gigs got bigger he needed to embrace the more sort of powerful I, I wonder, part of his yeah, range. I, yeah and i wonder if he made that all part of his persona because he could obviously still do it because in uh in wembley 86 they do that sort of um it, it, that what's it called impromptu is the track mm. um and they're sort of riffing around and he's up there on a, a top b flat which is that's crazy high mm. so he can obviously still do it right across his career um but yeah i wonder if he made it part of his whole persona that he would sing less wispily i guess if he if that's the way he saw it yeah well i think he because he wasn't actually didn't have singing lessons no. I think that as tours go on, his voice gets in worse condition. Probably. So he dodges out of some trickier mm. notes. Yeah. Because if, if you kind of watch him technically, he's, he doesn't sing very well technically. If no, you see nothing, what I mean. nothing about it should work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, although singing in a falsetto is, is easier than singing that hard mid-range belting that he did mm. that's much easier on the voice up there but um oh. yeah i wish i wish i could ask him <laughs> no. I think also i'm such a i'm such a like vocal technique nerd i'm obsessed with it i'm really interested in it so yeah i think also um, he had yeah. he had roger to fall back on in the live that roger could just yes. naturally yes. do the high stuff who has never lost that top range no no it's extraordinary and a, a, a full sound yeah yeah oh it's wonderful <laughs> should we should we actually listen to that little bit of what you're what you're talking about? That amazing mm. sort of yeah, move gimme. from Harlem. <laughs> yeah. What a move! <laughs> Take that, you know. It's the most. It's one of the most relaxing mellow songs. I just adore this song so much. Mm. Relaxing mellow song goes all playful uh, and calypso, and that turns out to be just the most amazing hard rock riff. Mm. One of the best hard rock riffs ever. It's an incredible <laughs> yeah. move. You just. It's a song that has everything in it. It's what we've been talking about a lot today. Even uh, our fan guy John Mersey, when he was talking about all the different types of music you can get an album you're getting it all in one song here yeah. it's crazy yeah you can see they're experimenting it's kind of uh, this song i always think makes me think of the millionaires waltz when they do the same thing they're using this uh the same um melodies mm. and chords but it's like they've made a whole different genre within the song yeah that's what i wanted to ask so when when you have songs like this which feel like they have completely different sections almost stitched together they're not stitched together they Mm-mm. they are blended so are there like things going on technically that hold this whole song yeah it's it like he you hear brian's playing acoustic guitar on that calypso section and then he essentially is playing the same rhythm notes everything but on a hard electric sound um yeah and it it all it shouldn't work and it works yeah, <laughs> same with everything with queen <laughs> it's amazing i think also something we're going to come back to quite a lot is Brian's ability to play um, very melodic guitar solos that whereas for most bands it sounds like right now it's time for a guitar solo and it sort of doesn't bear much relation to the song Mm. 
apart from its being in in the same key, it's someone showing off. But his mm. his solos are sort of counter melodies in themselves. Completely. That that I think is really important in stitching those different sections of song, songs together without feeling you're ever leaving the song at any one time. Yeah. I can't I can't remember. It must have, I think it's in one of your doc. It might have been Days of Their Lives, but someone somewhere in my head somewhere said um, that uh, a Brian May solo is the only kind of guitar solo you can actually sing along with. Yeah. <laughs> you can sing yeah, along. That's, yeah. that's, which is massive, but, well, right? Yeah. Well, he, I think he writes a lot of them on the piano and then transposes them to the guitar. Mm. So that would be part of the reason why. But also he he never outstays his welcome. Right. Ever. Right, right. Like, if... if I think in all of rock music, if you give someone sixteen bars or thirty-two bars and say, "Right, there's your, there's your bit," he's the person you would go to to be able to pack so much into that. Yeah. Do you include his live guitar solos in that? <laughs> well, the clever thing yes. the other members of the band have done have gone, <laughs> Brian. Have your bit. Right. Bit in yeah. The of course. Yeah, yeah. We'll go and have a fag yeah. and a pint of Heineken. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, in those moments, Rick Rick Wakeman actually has a curry during his show. <laughs> but, so Rick Rick Wakeman always has a curry halfway through his gig. But, but that's the moment where Brian can kind of be the fullest version of himself as an electric guitarist. But what that means is he sort of, he has that moment and then is able to be constrained in the songs, whereas someone perhaps like... You know, all great guitarists like Slash or mm. Steve Vai, whoever, kind of noodling on for ages. Actually, I've got to invoke producer Giles on this bit of it. Giles, could you just explain for us how Richie Sambora works in Bon Jovi, please? Oh, no, they just have him They have him on a loop in a cupboard. Basically, Richie Sambora lives in a cupboard. He just keeps playing guitar. <laughs> and when they need a solo from him, they open the door, shove the mic in. <laughs> when they've got enough solo, they shut the door again. <laughs> he loves it. He loves it, apparently. I, when, oh. I, when I was reading about this, I, I love the story about someone saying that when Brian did one of his first sort of guitar solos in those early concerts and, you know, he, he was playing with the delay and, you know, he plays a bit and it bounces around. <laughs> the audience were looking mm. for the second guitarist. And I just love this idea that wow. he's playing away and there oh. are people out there going, Wait, who's, who else is playing? Wow. And they just couldn't get their heads around the fact that it was him. Doing that's it. such that's such a flattering thing to hear. It is, it? yeah, like, it completely. Yeah, it is. He plays like two people. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like in the top. Uh, maybe this is a discussion for another podcast, but you know, whenever it comes up in the top five guitarists of all time, Brian isn't necessarily always included in those things. And you, when you actually look at the stuff that he was doing, mm. on every level, he's pushing the envelope. Right, he's incredibly. Yeah. You know, and it, you talk to the guitarists and they all love him. I yeah. Know. Well, he is to guitar what Freddie is to singing in right. that he's got his um, very um, definite voice, but he can lend it to anything, any genre. And, and where, where Freddie has the same thing, he's got this unmistakably Freddie voice, but he can lend it to any genre. Um, so, yeah. I think the reason he's not in a lot of those sort of high up in a lot of those lift, lists apart from Total Guitar who recently voted in the greatest guitarist of all time it's about time because Freddie's always number one on singers but it's, I think that he's he's the best composing guitarist 
uh, in pop and rock, but he's not, and I don't think he's ever tried to be like a, a virtuoso. Right. So even though he has moments of really complex playing, if you're a guitar dweeb, which I count myself <laughs> as, so can use that phrase, you do get a kick out seeing someone doing like a really, like an insane Metallica solo that goes on for a couple of minutes, but that was never his role to play. Mm. And I think credit to him that he he perhaps reined in his entire potential as an electric guitarist to make the songs themselves right. work. Mm. Yeah, music came first. Yeah, That's brilliant, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just going to, before we move off uh, doing all right, I'm just going to touch base with the fact that uh, and we mentioned it, but uh, Doing Alright was originally a Smile song uh, with Tim Staffel. Uh, and I think, again, you know, it's a lovely version. Tim's voice is lovely. But, you know, Freddie makes the song so distinctive, so very yeah. queen. It just brings this huge pomp into it. And I actually dug out um, an album called Amigo that was released in 2005 by... Um, uh, uh, Tim Staffel mm. uh, and it's got Brian on it Brian's joined oh, him really? to play mm. and they play this version of Doing Alright on it that's that's actually it's almost like easy listening it's an absolute right. it's, it's, it's a completely different version of the song it's sort of got that sort of it's actually quite nice and bouncy. It's got almost a country feel to it. Yeah. Well, he, he still gets... He's still got a royalty for many years for Doing Alright, which I think's a really nice move. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think he said in one interview he'd sort of earned 20 grand in in 20 years for, for doing all right, which I think is oh, quite sweet cool. that they yeah. would... Because uh, they wouldn't legally have had to do that, I don't no. think. Right. No, he's still credited, isn't he, as a co-writer on it, and I think Absolutely. that's, that's yeah. great. Um, There's a lovely YouTube clip of him out in uh, Japan quite recently. He seems, you know, the same age as the rest of the guys, and it's just him in a little room full of... Uh, these wonderful Japanese kids that are absolutely wrapped as he plays it, just him and his guitar. And then on all, every time they go, uh, you, you reach the chorus, the whole room, they're silent throughout the, the whole thing, just watching him. And then every time they reach the chorus, the whole room just goes, doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sweet. It's so oh. lovely. You should definitely check that out if you can find it. So, our next feature point uh, is News of the World. Come on, honey! Now, this is a podcast, so if you want up-to-date current news about Queen, we recommend going to a thing they have now called the Internet... (laughs) Uh, that will give you much more up-to-date information. All we're really talking about is just stuff that Queen happened to be doing at the point of recording uh, and we thought might be fun to chat about. Uh, A good example is, uh, at this point, uh, I think a week ago, uh, maybe even a little bit later than that, they... they, they, um, I was tickled to find that they uh, have... that Royal Mail are issuing a stamp collection of Queen... And uh, Roger's reaction really tickled me because he's quoted as saying, I guess we're part of the furniture now, <laughs> which is an amazing mm. response to being on a bunch of stamps. Can um, I give my Queen yeah. stamp fact now? Oh, yes. Please. The ideal and time for your Queen stamp fact. I mean, everyone's got a Queen stamp fact, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty keen on mine. Simon might be able to tell me whether this is true. So... 
Tony Benn. So the Queen <laughs> stamp fact starts with Tony Benn, right. who was then. I love it already. Who was then Postmaster General oh, in was the he? past. I love that man. Um, and he had to persuade the Queen that it was about time that uh, other images could appear on stamps apart from the royal head, the royal sort of profile. Uh, And it was to do commemorative stamps, I think, about um, uh, maybe the Olympics or Concord, or basically wanted to broaden the stamp world out to create sort of fun, cool ones. And eventually, after showing lots and lots of different designs, the Queen agreed. However, there was a sticking point uh, where they wanted to do, uh, I think, an outline of an athlete. Because the rule was that no living people could appear on stamps apart from the Queen. So the way that they overcame this was by um, doing a sort of an artist's impression of an athlete. So it wasn't a specific living person. It was just an outline. Fast forward 20 years or so, and this rule is still in place that that you can put stuff on stamps, but it can't be living people. And they did a commemorative set in the 90s with a picture of Freddie Mercury on stage. So having sadly died, it it was okay to put him on the stamp because you could commemorate uh, people who passed away. However, the person who set that stamp either didn't notice or wasn't aware of the rule because in the background Roger Taylor is on drums which I'm pretty sure meant that Roger Taylor is the first ever living person to appear on a British stamp other than the reigning monarch (laughs) oh that is badass and the link is that is a badass stamp fact thanks (laughs) man (laughs) that's that's blown my mind this is the only time people have got more interested as the anecdote went on and not less interested. <laughs> but so, is, is that true? Do you, do you know that fact, Simon? It, it is. You're absolutely right. It is true. It was... Um, wow. Yeah, 1999. And um, it was it was funny because the stamp caused controversy. A, because Roger, and I think to this day, remains the only living person who's not a member of the royal family to be on a stamp Um, but also uh, the Daily Mail waged a campaign against it I believe because they thought it was celebrating Freddie's reprehensible lifestyle by allowing him to go on a stamp which says more about the Daily Mail than anything you need to know doesn't it yeah Um, but yeah no I think I think that's that's genius I love that that story that is so yeah and I you're right I think it was a mistake I don't think the person noticed Roger in the back but by the time anyone pointed it out they'd been out for a week so Nothing they could do. The defence of so, Royal Mail was that the Queen had seen it and approved it, so therefore it was her fault. <laughs> so it was brilliant. So was is that because these stamps that have come out obviously feature living people on them? Yeah, they're just commemorative. They're commemorative collectors' editions. They're not legal stamps. You can't use them. To, right. From what I understand, you can't use them to post. They are just for collectors. They come in a nice. Oh, that's it. So so Roger is still. The only living person outside of the royal. Oh, That's what fantastic. I believe. Yeah. Wow. But, um, that could actually legitimately be on an envelope. Yeah. <laughs> and That's I think he was awesome. quite tickled with it, I imagine. Legitimately, what's just happened in Stamp World is maybe the most dramatic event of my stamp collecting. Well, just that information <laughs> about Roger <laughs> has blown my I, I might start collecting stamps now with just this to get collection. Your hands on. Well, Freddie collected stamps, didn't he? he oh, he did. A, he did, yeah. Quite a decent stamp collection. He was hmm. a philatelist. 
Um, I was a numismatist as a as a kid, uh, just to be cool, win favour with girls. I started collecting collected uh, numbers. Uh, coins. Coins, yes, you did. And, yep. um, I, I eventually settled on farthings, but I was a commemorative <laughs> coin guy for the first couple of years. But I do actually have a couple of queen coins if you want to see them. Oh, please. I love that all of this stuff is within arm's reach of you. I, I imagine that people listening to this must think this is all like stage. John is there just in his office or is it your room i don't know what your lounge and but literally behind him <laughs> is like this a huge array of queen stuff which he obviously has perfectly filed in his head because it's there's no hesitation just something comes up and he goes well i've just got a thing for this and he grabs <laughs> it it's there this is crazy we had no idea we were going to talk about well wait until because we're talking about early queen wait until we uh have to dive into not one but two copies of queen in cornwall Oh, queen cornwall. <laughs> what is that you literally produced that out of nowhere why so, do you have two copies i don't even want to know i've got two copies of queen in cornwall right. uh because I was sent a copy when I used to do a show on Radio X. I was sent a copy by, I think, the son of the guy who wrote it. Oh. It's by Rupert White. And where's my other copy? <laughs> I was, oh, my other copy's upstairs because I was reading it. Uh, and the, the other copy a friend found in a secondhand shop and bought for me. I'm, I think I'm the only person apart from the author to own two copies of Queen in Cornwall. Um, it is... A remarkable... Oh, well, let me say this. If you're not interested in Queen in Cornwall, do not read this book. <laughs> it, it really does what it says on the tin. What um, were they doing in Cornwall? It's basically... Because an awful lot of their early gigs leading up to Queen 1 were in Cornwall because Roger okay. used to run... Yeah. He used to actually promote shows down there I, on a, okay, sort of quite a small okay. scale. So their first ever gig uh, was in Truro. Right. He was known um, as the best drummer in Cornwall for a while and stuff like that. That's right, it? It yeah. All that kind of stuff. Well, <laughs> there, are, there are some really nice um, photos in here of... I mean, the archiving in here is is just remarkable because the guy who wrote it has access to an awful lot of the people who were in bands that supported them or who were in bands with Roger. So there's some incredible little um, sort of... Uh, you know, like, here, I'll show you here. This this was useless, but these are all the early Smile playbills. Oh, wow. Oh, that is lovely. And one of them uh, introduces uh, Cornwall's legendary drummer, Roger Taylor, plus Queen. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> amazingly, for a book called Queen in Cornwall, it's so in-depthly detailed about the early Smile shows and Roger shows that you don't actually get to Queen until the penultimate chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's about 200 pages of early early proto-Queen in Cornwall before you actually get to uh, Queen in Cornwall. But there's some cool stuff like... Oh, here we go. There you go. So that's the legendary drummer cool. of Cornwall, Roger Taylor... And Queen. And tiny queen. little letters, Queen. Yeah. Tiny little letters, <laughs> Before you go on, John, I'm just making a mental note of it. Write a book, Queen in Hertfordshire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You'll be able but, to make uh, a farthing. <laughs> there's an early, um, there's an early uh, contract that they signed that was saved from 
Uh, it says here, the contract for the concert, the College of Estate Management, St Albans Grove, signed by Brian May, uh, for £20 for a one-hour, 15-minute performance. The document was rescued from the archives of Moore, Sloan & Co. by Nigel Chappell. And you can see that it's obviously been like... So that's a, oh, yeah. a photocopy, but it's been sort of screwed up and then yeah. ironed flat to be uh, <laughs> taken in the book. Um, well, John, I, I'm so thrilled that you reached across for your commemorative Queen Coins uh, based Queen on a conversation about stamps, and now we've got a new spin-off podcast all about Queen, Queen in various counties. Different <laughs> counties. The County <laughs> Queen. I thought it might be a nice idea just to talk about... Um, the boys' Insta feed over the course of this lockdown period, just very briefly, because I think they've been wonderful, <laughs> really wonderful. I mean, obviously, I know Brian's been through a bit, but I, uh, particularly the first half of lockdown, I was checking with Brian May absolutely every day because he would have just something wonderful. Like, he really mm. was building a community, and it was lovely to see Roger getting in on the app. Were any of you guys following that stuff? Yeah, I've seen some of his uh, YouTube videos he's been doing. I I really liked with with Brian how at the start of the because I think any any sort of Queen fan knows that Brian is is sort of quite a sensitive chap and at, <laughs> at the start of the lockdown I sort of felt he he seemed to be taking on quite a lot of uh, sort of burden on his shoulders about the world but it was so nice to see him through Instagram find it as a way not just of providing lots of content and connection with fans but also he seemed to become a bit more confident and a bit ha happier in himself throughout throughout it I mean obviously then ended with uh with problems with illness which uh, we do all wish him well but mm. he, he just seemed so much more chipper that he, he found a way to kind of play licks and talk to people and and feel like there was a sense of community around him through Instagram yeah, I agree. In fact, we've, I'm going to indulge our producer who's hiding in the background, uh, which is he's called variously Giles and Hendo and Henderson and Fergus and all sorts of things. But I'm going to call him Giles right now. Giles, you were telling me an amazing because Giles plays the guitar and uh, he jumped. Was it Bo Rap that you jumped in on, mate? I used to, but this happened during lockdown, so I can't. Oh really no! Know. You've broken your guitar. The head has come off the neck of my guitar, my Gibson oh. has been decapitated. Oh. And it happened shortly after watching one of Brian's Play Along With Me videos. He was teaching everyone how to do the solo, the kind of mid-song, mid mid-speed solo from mm. Bo Rap. And maybe it was from my frustration, but I was so sure the last note he was playing on that Play Along was incorrect. <laughs> now, now, I'm going to assume that Brian May knows how to play <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody, right? But I don't understand. You know, the the end of it da 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 and then he comes in with a little silhouette of the map <laughs> he was he was playing that da 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 and it was just such a wrong note he played it over and over again i wanted to message him brian i, I don't know what's going on but that's not right and i do have a feeling he was just being tricky i think he was just trolling us yeah you don't want to you don't want to be mansplaining exactly <laughs> exactly exactly oh my i've mansplained so many people in my life but not brian may no no yeah it's wonderful wonderful stuff basically we really like Brian and Roger, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> Imagine um, if we're like, I, I don't. <laughs> oh no, yeah. Suze. <laughs> yeah, sorry, not keen. Shall we move on to the second half of side two, mm. which is uh, Great King Rat. Great King 
There's a lot of um, DNA for Queen to come in this track. Uh, how do you guys? Definitely. Anyone's uh, excited about this piece of music? It's Freddie's first composition. It is that is on an album, isn't it? It's and it's so Freddie. It's got all that. Um, it's got all that sort of decadence and filth. Uh, and I, I love. And it's so Freddie for him. It's all with a wink. Although, wouldn't you like to know? Yeah. Would you like to see? Yeah. It's really, yeah, it's really Freddie. I, I find the song like pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really heavy as yeah. well. It's like it's yeah. probably in Queen's five heaviest tracks. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, fun fact for gear nerds: it's it's the only time Brian used a wah pedal uh, sort of extensively. Oh. Um, and a lot of people think he uses wah when he doesn't because. Uh, what, what you can so this is the only time he's using like an active wah, so actually moving the pedal. What a lot of people think Brian does in other songs is using a set wah, mm-hmm. which is where you just. And this is something Frank Zappa, who fun fact introduced <laughs> Jimi Hendrix to the wah pedal, yeah. uh, used to do is you actually set the wah and don't manipulate it during the song, but you get it on that sweet spot of the bit where it modulates the tone. Um, but Brian doesn't need to do that because he can set the pickups on his guitar out of phase, which which mimics that sound. So, what another th- reason Brian's amazing <laughs> is just how much of that sound is coming out of his fingers, his pick, and the guitar, and how little extra is added onto that sound to create the, the sort of or- orchestrations. Because you listen to stuff from especially the first five albums, and you think, well, that's got to be that's got to be manipulated somehow, but it really isn't. It's it's the red special, it's the pickups, it's the um, the sixpence, and it's the the treble booster the, and the the dekey amp, and that's mm-hmm. basically it. And you, if you look at like rig rundowns on YouTube, so the guitar from Skunk and Ansi, his rig will be sort of six <laughs> foot wide, four foot deep desk of pedals so it might be 20 or 30 pedals if you look at brian's it's one button hmm. and that turns the treble booster on and off and that's that's basically that's it and everything else is actually happening on the guitar wow. because he built the damn thing incredible wow. what a unique individual that's brilliant John. yeah I, I should also point out um my girlfriend shares a birthday with great king rat ah <laughs> 21st of may uh, yeah, uh, which I only realised this year. So her, her birthday's the twenty first of May, and I was listening to Great King Rat, and I came downstairs and says, "You've got the same birthday as Great King Rat." He, he died of syphilis on his birthday when he was forty four. Uh, must have gone down great. I'm amazed you're still together. So um, uh, the thing I've always thought about Great King, weirdly, my relationship with it is. When I'm not listening to it, I don't think I like it. And then the second I start listening to it, I absolutely adore mm. it. And it happens every time. It surprises me every <laughs> time. Listen, should we listen to some of this stuff? 
Hell yeah. yeah. Can we listen to maybe a bit of the war solo? Yeah. Just because sings we're talking about it and it's the only time he uses it. Show me. I think it's interesting because Freddie was obsessed with Jimi Hendrix. Mm. And I think it's interesting that there isn't more wah in their early songs mm. because, I mean, breaks my heart that I wasn't alive at the time, but he used to follow Jimi Hendrix around yeah. the gigs he did in London mm-hmm. where you could go and see him above like pubs in Camden and stuff. <laughs> um, so it, it's an interesting little um, outlier, that, that mm. guitar solo. Mm. Yeah, and also I think there's a DNA here for um, We Are The Champions because he's riffing on Old King Cole, right? The Old King Cole was a merry old soul and a merry old soul was him. You know, that uh, champions does I'm the king of the castle, you're the dirty rascal. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's something that's always interested me where Mm. you were saying this earlier, Suze, where there are things in this album that, that, that are clear DNA markers for stuff that they they don't know that they're going to create yeah. that's going to become part of the lexicon of human civilization. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's not like they're one of those bands where, oh, you should hear the early stuff. You'd never guess it was Queen. There are songs that mm. are like that. Mm. But you can all the way all the way through their even their very earliest stuff, you can hear where the latest stuff comes from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh well I'm gonna play a little bit more on this. Um uh, the bit that uh, always uh, blows my mind is when he just he goes full Roman in the in the middle of the song. Do you know the bit I mean? Full Roman. Yeah. so many sections of this song uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's quite a why why is freddie so obsessed with the jesus on this album please <laughs> <laughs> he religion comes into it quite a lot but it's it's uh, always questioning religion isn't it yeah cuz mm. i mean we'll get to this on the next episode but jesus yeah. Yeah. the song jesus isn't um here's a song about the son of god it's a song about yeah all these people are worshiping this guy i wonder why Right, right, um, right, right. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. But it's also it's it's also quite odd for the religion to sit so close to that fantasy, like pagan aspect of all of the Lord of the Ringsy type stuff mm. to be maybe mm-hmm. slightly um, disparaging. <laughs> I don't mean it <laughs> no, like no, because as a as a kid, I loved all of that mm. those sort of fantasy worlds. Mm. It is interesting that it's something that they very much just stop doing. Mm. So there's there's none of that really. After Queen One and I'd say after Shit Heart Attack because you've got lack of yeah to 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 quite yeah well I think it's it it contributed to their um, reputation as being sort of Led Zeppelin imitators which has stuck around to this day Mm. after after being peddled by naysayers like Danny Baker. But I, I've got <laughs> also from Queen in Cornwall the oh, uh, the resource that keeps on giving is is um, 
an Ibex set list. Oh, uh, oh yeah, Freddie's band from Manchester, in Freddie's right? writing, but the Liverpool. he's also sketched on it some sort of ogre type figures. <laughs> so if you look there, oh, oh wow. wow, it's oh look at him in the middle. <laughs> he is good at drawing though, isn't he? Yeah, he's a very yeah, good yeah. artist. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he was sort of sketching fantastic figures around that time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it is it is it is perhaps a more out of fashion than out of an inherent desire to promote. Yeah, no, I'm down with of, um, all the fantasy. You know, the fairy. Well, I mean, obviously, my fairy king's about to. We're about to discuss and fairy fellas, masterstroke, and ogre battle, all that yeah. stuff. Totally. I mean, Queen Two is almost entirely a a, a fantasy album, which is incredible. But um, the religion thing has always just massively surprised me. Uh, particularly yeah. out of Freddie's writing, and there's an interesting thing. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, maybe it's a discussion for another podcast. But why Freddie was so quiet about his cultural background, his ethnicity, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know that it was uh, a particularly brilliant time to be running around saying uh, I'm gay. I think that it definitely. Wasn't. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, and actually thinking about the fact that my parents came to this country uh, in the late 60s I think it was a fantastic not necessarily a fan there was a lot of people that were just absolutely blown away by people of color and were really excited mm-hmm. by them and you know my parents had that as an experience more than any other but certainly when you're putting yourself front and center to be a massive pop pop and rock star I wonder if that might have, and this is pure conjecture, pure wondering of whether it was something he kept quiet about because, you know, it, unfortunately, people were quite resistant to uh, people of colour at that time. Well, and he had been on the receiving end of racism. Had he? Hadn't he? Yeah, um, working in Heathrow. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I want, a... yeah, very possibly he just went, well, I just will... I'll just keep quiet about Not that. mention it. I'll just be Freddie Mercury and, and that will... Possibly. But also, I mean, there's... I mean, today, Indian rock music is still, you know, remarkably white. But even more so if you think about uh, Asian and brown acts as opposed to just non-white. I mean, how many... Um, how many examples would there have been in Freddie's world mm. of uh, Indian or African singers right. in rock? Right. Mm. I mean, it would it would be zero and a handful today. We're still twenty mm. years away from Corner Shop. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to think of. To it's think even of more reason why he would follow Hendrix round gigs. Then, right? Mm. It's sort yeah, of it's fit, true. that sort of is a bit of it's a true. insight into. Oh yeah, that would appeal to him. And I suppose what I was, was getting back to was that maybe embracing these ideas of Christianity and stuff that it possibly helped with a, a mask, if there was one. I don't know. Who can yeah. know? Out of thoroughness, I'm going to mention Mad the Swine here, which because only because they were going to put it in between uh, Great King Rat and My Fairy King, which is a track that Freddie wrote. All children gather around. Come join your hands and sing. Yes, I, I've come to save you, save you. 
they didn't include it because they weren't happy with the sound recording of it, which is awesome. I just, just brilliant. We're just not happy with the sound recording of it, so we're not going to put mm. it in. And that's how fastidious they were. Didn't come mm. out until a B side in '91 on the Headlong album, which was Innuendo mm-hmm. Times. So that's a long old wait. Mm. Um, and I think at that point they put it in as an extra track on a new version of the Queen One album. So I guess if you pick up the deluxe version, you'll have well, you do have it. But um... it, well, I think it sounds like a smile song yes. if you listen to Mad yeah, the Swine more than yeah. more than anything mm-hmm. on the album. So I think whether by luck or design, I think it, it's it's right that it isn't on the album actually, because when you listen to it now in context, it feels more like those earlier smile songs like Blag and mm. um, Polar Bear and oh, April yeah. Lady and that kind of thing. It's another one that's bizarrely religious, isn't it? Mad the Swine. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But nothing to do with Freddie. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Let's do a quick feature point we're calling Now Who's Here? Now I'm here. Think I stay Simon uh, quite wonderfully has uh, the ability to find lots and lots of juicy things from all these wonderful documentaries he's made around uh, about Queen that uh, we're hoping he'll get to share with us. And I think you found a couple of bits that you wanted to share with us for... Um, this album yes or at least yeah. the first half of this album. yeah well i just thought it'd be nice to um to hear the band talking about their first album and um thanks to uh greg brooks who is the the keeper of the queen archive which um it's very difficult to get into at the moment given lockdown but bless mm. him he sort of came up trumps and he sent me some interviews that um the band gave so this was an interview they gave in 1977 um, but looking back at those uh, at those early days um, with with Queen and particularly the sort of around this um, this first album, and I think what's really striking is is when when we talk about this album is that the songs that, that appeared on this first album they Queen had been living with for about three years before the album actually came out. It was the songs they'd written. Some of them were came out of Smile. Um, or sort of the embryos for them might have been with with Freddie's bands, Ibex or Wreckage. So they'd sort of existed in some shape or form for a long time and they played them live. So for them, it felt like it had taken them a long time. But anyway, I'll let the band talk about that rather than me. So this, Wow, what a treat. So yeah, so this is a little little clip for you. Roger, can we go to uh, the beginnings of the group? You and Freddie were working or you had a stall right in the Kensington Ah, market yes partners in crime partners in crime Um, yes it was really just it was more of a sort of social centre I think at the time at the time that Queen was sort of in its formative stages and we were going through all their traumas with trying to find somebody to manage us and find a record company etc we sort of uh, slogged our way around made some demo tapes etc through some friends and then sort of hawked them around the business as it was and still is Eventually, sort of securing ourselves several companies who were interested. We then did a gig, I think it was at King's College, mm. somewhere down in South London, and uh, got a load of record companies along. And, and then we started to sort of uh, 
try and wheel and deal a bit our way into a sort of good recording situation. How long did it take you from the time that you'd made the demo to the time that you actually got a recording contract? Oh. It felt like about 80 years, I think. It was a long time. It was about two years. <laughs> yeah, it was about it? 18 months, two years, yeah. There was a, a, great, Brian, a yes. great deal of feeling of frustration at the time. The first album was really old songs by the time it came out, as far as we were concerned. And uh, it put us in a strange position because there were a lot of... We were sort of one of the groups who came along with a show and a sort of an idea of a complete production as a stage show and everything. Whereas by the time the record came out, and particularly by the time it got played by anyone and all this, I mean, it takes so long to get things going, it was all sounding like old news, you know, so people were inclined to tag us as the tail end of glitter rock or something. There you go. So, yeah. The theme is developing. This is exactly what you were talking about, that um, Queen essentially formed, you know, 50th anniversaries next year, but, you know, everything was... Everything at the beginning was so slow to get going. Right? Mm. They've been sat with this album for so long. That's right. <clears throat> I've been reading a lot about that period in the run-up to recording this podcast. I would like to perhaps provide a slight counterpoint because there was so... I think he's r- certainly right in that that album could really be called like Queen the Early Years could be the name of that album because it's sort of a compilation of everything that they'd sort of picked up since the late 60s but if you think that John joined the band in March 1971 Queen 1 was released just over two years later and by the end of 1973 in the September they were they were being recorded by the BBC a live gig if you gave any new band the option of having a record deal and an album out and being recorded by the BBC within two years of finalising <laughs> your yeah. your sort of lineup, I think most band would would absolutely snap your arm off. Mm. And also, they were offered a recording contract oh, yeah. earlier with Chrysalis, which they turned down. Yeah, for I think twenty grand, which yeah. goodness knows what that's worth in today's money. Mm. And I think it shows enormous um, vision that they did turn that down but also that they essentially stopped gigging. So if you look at the, as um, Simon mentioned, queenconcerts.com is a brilliant resource. Um, it's basically every gig they ever did. Mm-hmm. But they did 21 gigs um, between John joining and Queen One coming out, which in terms of like, a sort of a, a jobbing band mm. is very small amount. Yeah, they nothing. did barely any in uh, 1972, which I think was when they were trying to get the the right record deal in place. Um, and the first of the the gigs they did to sort of promote Queen One was uh, the Golders Green gig, which there is a recording of mm. that the BBC made, which I had only I only discovered this week, and because it's on YouTube. And it's. I think we might talk about it later. Yeah, but it's, yeah. You shared it. It's with a. It's, it's a phenomenal artifact. Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously for them, very frustrating having because you forget everyone in the sixties was in a band, so they'd yeah. all been in bands for ten years, say, you know, seven or eight years. So it was the end of a long process sure. personally, but in terms of kind of like four guys getting together, then getting a recording contract, then getting an album out, it's. It's not. It's not ages. It's not like pulp. No, I suppose. You know, pulp, pulp didn't make it for about fifteen years. Yeah. 
or elbow. <laughs> but I, but I, but I wonder to what extent that album essentially being behind their own times, if that's not too much of a sort of contrived way of saying it, con- containing stuff that to them was maybe a couple of years out of date. I wonder to what extent that set the tone with critics never quite getting on board with them mm. totally. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And I wonder if they never sort of lost that um, reputation for being uh, sort of slightly after the curve, even though... Mm. Queen 2, you could tell how desperate they were to move on because right. those those live gigs to promote so Queen 1 say, already yeah. had half of the stuff from Queen yeah. 2 in and Queen 2 came out in what, you know, it's like it was, seven it was months. months later or something, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah that Golders yeah. Green gig, was. there was so much uh, Queen 2 material on there and only a couple of tracks yeah. off the first yeah. album. I'm going to ask, uh, Simon, is there, any, is there another clip you wanted yeah. to play us? Or? Yeah, I'll just yeah. play another bit for a bit a bit later on in the interview where they, they talk about then what happened when the album actually finally got onto the <laughs> onto the shelves and uh, and particularly oh, after brilliant. Keep Yourself Alive had been released as a single. Keep Yourself Alive, your first single. Brian, were you mm. disappointed that this didn't do better? Oh, yes, yes. It's, it takes me back very vividly to the time, actually, because this is just the time when we started... We did a few gigs on our own, some small gigs, and then went on the support tour with Mott the Hoop and um, went around the whole country getting really good reactions and thinking, yeah, we're really getting somewhere. And yet all the time we were watching the single and the album and nothing appeared anywhere in the charts, you know. And it just seemed like an impossible wall. We thought, how is it done? You know, we couldn't get the single played on the radio at all, hardly. Well, there's a couple of people that played it, but it didn't get any sort of uh, uh, power play. Uh, but there's no doubt that the beginning is the worst. You know, you have no track record, you have no reputation. Tough times, yeah, you know, wow. but it's it just, it wasn't an overnight success. I mean, John's absolutely right. It it was, looking back on it, it was a time scale that I think any any band would, would kill for. But yeah. it, it, it wasn't something that just, they suddenly rocked up and then they were huge. It was, there was a lot of graft, there was a lot of, you know, chipping away and a lot of frustration at how long it was taking. Um but I, I think what's interesting there is that when people were seeing them live, from what Brian was saying there, they're getting it, and people are going, "This is something extraordinary." And I think, yeah. I think that's been them their whole career. That if you see them live, you you get them mm. much more than if you just listen to the to the albums. I think you know they mm-hmm. are they are consummate studio recorders, but they are they are such a great live act. Phenomenal musicians, mm. yeah, absolutely. I've got to ask: do you, you don't happen to know who that interviewer is? Was it for the BBC? Yeah, it was a guy or? called Tom Brown, I think. Yeah, I'm just thinking like that's such a that's such a classic sort of 70s and 80s <laughs> BBC radio. And you think, God, all the voices on Six Music now, yeah, no one sounds like that <laughs> anymore. Which is progress. No. Don't get me wrong; that is progress. No, and if you've but got, if you can get access to it's the, like a duvet. The, the Queen on Air box set that came out, I think it was a couple of years ago. The whole interview is on there, and it's great. It's really worth. And they just talk about all of their career up to that point, which then was 1977. So it's well worth a listen. Wow. But yeah, he, he's the most unrock and roll type person to interview them, wasn't it? <laughs> um, all right. So shall we move on to my fairy king? Which yes, is... please. Yeah. Circle ring. 
like to know what the significance of this lyric is. Uh, someone has just drained the colour from my wings, broken my fairy circle ring. Well, it's sort of unambiguous, really, is isn't it? it? It's amazing. No, well, t I think it is. I like, <laughs> uh, shamed the king in all his pride, and then like two lines later, he's going, "Mother Mercury." Mother Mercury, yeah. I mean, that's uh, surely that's um, barely cloaking uh, him coming out and her, his complicated feelings around that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, certainly it's, it's, like, it's yeah. this mention of Mercury in this song and then also she, he mentions Mercury again in uh, Liar, I think. But th mm. that's that's allegedly where he sort of turned to Brian and went, right, I'm going to call myself Freddie Mercury for this mm -hmm. point, right? Looking back with hindsight, he's got so many coming out songs yeah. <laughs> that none of them are quite coming out songs. But if you want to sort of put that um, hindsight onto them, you know, son and son and daughter. Mm. I mean, I'd, he didn't necessarily write all of these songs, but with his mm. influence, with his treatment, you can't help but read them through that lens. That's it. I mean, yeah. some, um, but yeah. some of the some of the lyrics from um, My Fairy King come from, in fact, the opening line comes from a poem by um, Robert Browning. Oh, okay. Called uh, The Pied Piper of Hamelin. Um, so this is from the 13th stanza of that right. uh, poem. Let Let's hear the stanza. It. Yeah. Um, the sparrows were brighter than the peacocks here and their dogs outran our fallow deer and honeybees had lost their stings and horse, horses were born with eagles' wings. Oh, wow. So that's from uh, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, right. uh, which was written in the 19th century. <laughs> there you go. Presumably on lots of opium. <laughs> yeah. Can only yeah. That's great. These guys have got serious degrees going on. They've read books. <laughs> They've read books. Um... It's, it's weird though, isn't it? There's a lot of the song seems like Freddie's singing about an idealised version of himself, he, he, calling himself a king. Um, as he said, can do right and nothing wrong. It's like he's wrestling with um, a version of himself that he would love to be and a version of himself that he's worried that he is. I don't know. It's um, and But also it's a really cool prog song <laughs> yeah it really is and it's got so many movements should we listen to some bits of it yeah yeah uh, people are always amazed by how many movements there are in Bohemian Rhapsody but these guys have been mm. doing this from from the word mm -hmm. go right Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Best song on the album, song. without yeah. a shadow yeah, of a doubt. It it's it. Best yeah. song on the album for you. And I, th- the, my my favourite two moments on the album are in that clip sure. you played. So the the bit where's the counter, so the counter melody where he's going, he rules the air, and, and yeah, then there's yeah. the bit on the top. Yeah. That's my yeah. favourite moment on the album, mm. and and the bass. Oh, the bass going into that. Incredible. Yeah. Another great thing about this is, um, in doing all right, Brian played the piano because he sort of helped write the song with Tim Staffel. So he was like, mm. "I'm playing the piano," and the legend is, is that when he heard Freddie's piano playing on "My Fairy King," it was like, "Okay, from now on, <laughs> Freddie does the piano <laughs> playing." Oh, really? And Brian talks really passionately about how brilliant Freddie's piano playing was, and it's because. You know, when you're taught to play the piano, it's about keeping your wrists up, you know, and yes. your fingers. Whereas Freddie, if you watch him live, his wrists are down, you know. And mm. Brian mm-hmm. says that gives him so much more power to the point that his piano playing is, is becomes like a metronome. It is so mm. rigid and, you know, powerful. And when you listen to that and you just hear that thumping of the piano, it's absolutely mm. doing that, yeah. keeping time. Um, and it's spot on. I mean, he, as well as being a brilliant songwriter, a brilliant singer, a brilliant performer, it turns out he's a genius on the piano as well. Who knew? Yes. Um, can, can we concede that uh, when he plays guitar on Crazy Little Thing Called Love at Live Aid, maybe he shouldn't be the first choice guitarist? Well, it's a fine line, isn't it? <laughs> this guitar never plays the chords exactly. I want to play. Yeah. Why that, does he play it? Despite on the <laughs> Duke Edney come along after that point. It's, it's, it reminds that that that, that um, metronomic piano bit, the dint, dint, mm. that is... That foreshadows Killer Queen yes. and Bohemian yes. Rhapsody. Yes. There, I got a lot of Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. from that mm. um, from that piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's the best song on the album. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's such, it's such an incredible song because this song is relentless, but it still manages to build. It you never go. Oh, it's got nowhere left to go because it always goes somewhere. And then we have this um, slow section, and then it builds to this minute-long instrumental at the end. And it's like, oh, I'm having a heart attack over here. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good how he. I like I don't have a mind that can layer instruments like that. I'm a real bad arranger, but um how he heard, yeah, I'm going to layer all the um instrumentation like this is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, right. It's right, crazy. Right. Yeah. Um I'm half tempted to play the final minute. Um, <laughs> uh, but you at home should find it on your iTunes or Spotify or whatever and listen to this track. It is an incredible track. Um and it, it it, you're right. I think the, the blueprint for what's to come is all in here. It's also just, it's such an astonishing group. Of, for me, one of Freddie's like monster songs is on, on Queen 2 on the black side, which is um, March of the Black Queen. It's a mm. monster. It has so many, there's so many melodies in that track that each of them deserve to be a song in their own right. And My yeah. Fairy King 
It absolutely has that. You know, the joy of that. You know, and Mm. it's such a wow. Mitch Ben, the comedian Mm. who some people might know from Radio 4, said one of my favourite ever things about Bohemian Rhapsody. He said, what's amazing about Bohemian Rhapsody is not that it's five minutes, 55 seconds long. It's that it's only five (laughs) minutes, 55 seconds long. That's so good. That's so true of an awful lot of the early Queen tracks is these aren't 12 minute prog epics Mm -mm. in three parts like a lot of bands were doing at the time. These are four, four and a half minute songs where you're actually going through all of those movements Mm. and all of those phases and all of those different parts and it's the same length as like a Beatles track. Right, yes. right, right. Or maybe slightly longer. Right. But they're not sort of sprawling. You know, a lot of prog bands were doing one track was the first half uh, of the album yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. King well, Queen Crimson. were able to condense that. Mm. Mm. And it's just the blend of their sort of, like you were saying, Suze, their orchestration is this orchestral sound. Almost there's choral bits in it that are just yeah. as accomplished as any choir can do yeah uh, it's got this baroque feel to it and then this massively poppy feel to it all in one yeah glorious sound that just makes you feel good yeah oh, yeah well something that's thrown at queen i've heard quite often is how they were really self-indulgent and going back to that that's brilliant from mitch uh but that no it's the opposite they weren't and that's yes how yes that's how they didn't that's end a really up being a point. king crimson style band yeah, yeah. no you're absolutely right Compared to yes, they were not <laughs> indulgent. More like no. <laughs> <laughs> take, take that yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> That'll show them. There's nothing wrong with yes, by the way. Uh, but yeah, no, like, no, bands no. like that, they were constantly trying to, you know, Sparks tried to poach Brian or Roger at one point, you know what I mean? And and they, they were always like, no, no, we're good with Queen, thanks. And for good mm. damn reason, this song is, is absolutely it's phenomenal. Of so this brings us... Finally, to uh, so obviously we'll look at Liar, Night Comes Down, Modern Times Rock and Roll, Son of Daughter, Jesus and Seven Seas Arrive on the next episode. So there's that to look forward to. So our next uh, feature section point <laughs> place is uh, something I've called Made for Heaven. Made in Heaven, Made in Heaven. Now this is the exciting bit. So you, listener, can uh, think, well, I want to make a Queen playlist. Now... Obviously, you can make a queen, a wider queen playlist from what you've, you, you've listened to today. I think there's a lot of tracks you can put in. You can have the singles for free if you want. But if you want to make a cream de cream, creme de la creme uh, 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 thing. Do you mean, are you trying to get to queen de queen la de queen? queen? Queen de la queen, thank you. Uh, Obviously, uh, I don't hate now. it. <laughs> yes, nice yes, yes. give it ten weeks and you will. <laughs> queen de la Queen playlist, perfect. Um, uh, so we're going to have a quick chat about uh, which of these tracks should be the one track that you put in your Queen de la Queen. I mean, I think you put the whole side into your gen- generic Queen playlist, right? But that's the thing isn't it any one of these would be worthy contenders <laughs> i think that's how do you not include any one of those? no i mean i i was all set when when we sort of talked about this i was all set to wave the flag for doing all right because i Me absolutely too. love that track 
but do we really need to discuss it's my fairy king isn't it <laughs> it's based on what we've just talked I, about i really hope it is of course I mean, it is it's i mean it, they could all be in it but how do you how do you make a case for it not being my fairy king and i just i, I can't mm. think of one it's extraordinary isn't it it's like it's not the like if you if you told someone ah oh, on the first album of queen there's this great song called my fairy king you've yeah. got to hear <laughs> Like who's who's gonna even take you seriously? And actually, the 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 Queen one sound is very often. Uh, uh, there's a track on the second side of the album that I always use to kind of like listen to this. These guys are cool. Mm. Like whatever mm, you think mm-hmm. of them, however commercial they've become or whatever. If you want to see how cool these guys are, I'll take something off Queen one. But it's never my fairy king. So right. why is my fairy king better than? Keep yourself alive, doing all right, and great king rap that you must have on on the first half uh, in your playlist. Well, I th- like Simon says, these that could be another yeah, feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Says. I'm writing that down as well. Individual <laughs> <laughs> will have to do what you, they say. when you when you see it as a side. It kind of feels like they're all greatest hits now that we've right. talked about yeah. them for for an hour or two. But I, for me personally. I get the biggest emotional reaction from my fairy king and it does feel like the biggest harbinger of what's to come especially on queen 2 mm. and I and I think it, there's an awful lot more pathos on this album than there are in the later albums yeah. and I think you could probably say the same of queen 2 but there are really fragile moments and they're really quite sad laments almost and that moment in in my fairy king amongst all of the sort of bombast and the the layering of of freddie just sort of saying you know look what they've done to me i cannot run i cannot hide it's just whoa you you're suddenly feeling a real emotional connection um and if when i used to ruin parties by playing early queen <laughs> You know, when everyone else wanted to wanted to put on, yeah, when everyone else was sort of wanting to put on stuff that had been released in the last twenty years, yeah. I, I would always put on my fairy king just to kind of annoy them. So for me, I just think it's the fullest example of Queen's entire breadth in one track from this yes, side. Yes, definitely. I used to do that as well. And my first boyfriend, who is horrible, <laughs> he went, he he um. He threw threw Queen uh, Queen One on CD from the CD player after the third time I'd put it on at a party because I'm an imp. And then he put on Disturbed, uh, but I wasn't allowed to throw that out. So I think I think what I'm getting to is I won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was right. Yeah. Not, not I think, a, not, not a far from here, party. actually. <laughs> he's doing a disturbed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's doing it from three times. Three times she put this on. But he's, he's doing it from under a quilt. Um, so, um, uh, all right, my fairy king. It has to be my fairy king. In your uh, Queen de la Queen um, <laughs> playlist immediately, and then put all the other tracks in your Queen playlist. 
Yeah. yeah. That is what we are here for. So that brings us to the end of the first episode wow. of The Queen Pod, which is awesome. <laughs> so thank you, guys. Thank you, all of you. It's thank been you. amazing. It's Pleasure. such a joy. So listen, guys, I'm going to thank you. And I can't wait to see you for side B of, uh, of this album. Um, and I'm going to also say to you, listener, please drop us a line. Queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. If you've got any comments about how, like, we probably said things that have incensed you, you could say, you could just get it off your chest, send it to us, we will absorb it and then ignore it and it will never see the light of day. But if you have lovely things to say, then, you know, do the likes on the podcasty thing so that we know that people are actually enjoying the podcast and leave a review and send us, you know, just how you got into Queen, why you love uh, uh, my fairy king more than any other song queen's ever done anything like that if you've got a question for us to debate we will ruin that for you as well so uh, do <laughs> and that and if you've got a if you've got a really deep fact you want to ask mm. for Simon Says <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, because we have access to Queen's official uh, yeah, archivist. Yeah. I think yeah. if you've got something that's all you've always wanted to know, then we can do Simon Says. Because we you. suspect he's yeah. phoning it in, and I think we've really <laughs> got to challenge him to actually find out, like, yeah, what make of black nail polish did Freddie wear when he was playing live? Bieber. Oh, it was Bieber. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> that's page one, row. But yes, <laughs> do do please like this. Do please um, comment on it because uh, Queen Management are very kindly letting us get away with this, um, but, which they will continue to do if they think people enjoy it and like it. If they get a sense no one's listening, we'll be out on our ear before you know it. Yeah, and like carrying on without the music is just leaving in all the worst bits. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we need like, the music. We do need the music. This is so, yeah. such a joy to be able to use use the tunes and we're very grateful to um, so queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com and at thequeenpod on twitter and insta does that do us yeah see you next time see you next time bye this has been the queen pod a seven seas films production edited and produced by me fergus march follow us on twitter and instagram and stay in touch by emailing queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com Thanks for listening and see you next time.